0: Tid- tidbits and pieces. <laughs>
1: tidbits and pieces.
2: <laughs> Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're doing a clip show. These are bits and pieces that were left over from our recording sessions, but we feel they're worth sharing with you. I am very, very fortunate to work with some very learned and talented cohorts in the production of this podcast. Don and John have been my two most frequent collaborators, and I am not sure if it comes through in the final product just how these conversations end up taking place. Typically, we get together and decide on a few films that we're interested in talking about. I then go away and do the research and develop the order of the conversation for the episode. When it comes time to sit down in front of the microphones, Don and John come into the conversation cold and do not know about the information that I'm going to share with them. Everything that they bring to that conversation comes from their experience and their interests. I am amazed during every recording session how they can cite references that relate to the film and the discussion we are having. Of course, having a spontaneous conversation with two people like Don and John also means that we sometimes divert from the topic at hand and go deep into a related subject. It is these diversionary topics that I'm going to share with you today. In this clip episode, you will hear a discussion about which is a better baseball movie, Bull Durham or Moneyball. I will also share a long-delayed continuation about the film Rocketman, the biopic of Elton John, and the subject of the third episode that John and I ever did, recorded way back in 2019. And the last clip in this episode will be a discussion that I've wanted to have with Don and John for a while, which is about why we do what we do on this podcast biopics mostly suck feel free to join the discussion you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram at the handle of at mostly suck you can also find us online at biopics and you can reach out to us at our email address biopics mostly at gmail.com now on with the show Our first clip comes from a discussion about the film Moneyball. In our discussion, we talked about how Steven Soderbergh was the director that was first attached to the film, and how he was going to take a very different direction by presenting the events in the most accurate way possible. Soderbergh had mentioned how he was very influenced, in a way, by the movie Bull Durham, a classic film from 1987 that stars Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, and Tim Robbins. And that's when John posed the question, which diverted us from the topic of Moneyball for about 15 minutes. So then,
0: Bull Durham or Moneyball? Moneyball. Over Bull Durham? Over
2: Bull Durham? Yeah. Are you kidding
1: me? Because I just, I I think it's just personal appeal. I just, I liked the characters in Bull Durham, but I found the characters in Moneyball to be more engaging. Interesting. Like,
0: Do you think the characters in Bull Durham
2: are flatter? Yes. Okay. Oh, I would disagree. Uh, well, first off, I would say I could probably rattle off five quotes from Bull Durham, and I can't say I could do the same thing on Moneyball. Which means Bull Durham's more in my brain. Number okay, two, that's personal. Number two, Moneyball is a fucking sausage fest compared to Bull Durham. Bull Durham, you have female perspectives that are presented, which are completely missing in Moneyball.
1: In Major League Baseball, how many women are involved?
2: In the baseball culture, I'm saying in Bull Durham there were. Great roles for women in that film.
1: Sure, but in Moneyball, where would women have fit in? I'm not arguing that women didn't belong there. I'm saying in actuality, but if we're... women would not be there, so.
2: But we're, we're talking about why the movie appeals. Yes. And I'm not saying that there was a place in Moneyball for women to be. I'm just saying why Bull Durham appeals more to me.
1: Okay. Well, it sounded more like you were no. arguing that it should be more appealing.
2: No. We're not having the same discussion here.
1: Okay.
0: It seems to me like the characters in Bull Durham are more fixed, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. They have they're dynamic, but it seems like there are more layers to the characters in Moneyball. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a product of, I don't know, of our age. I mean, like, we tend to flesh out character detail a lot more than... Some of these, like, you know, you have Tim Robbins as the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the dumb bumpkin neophyte, which it, that that role is utterly, you know, defined, and everyone understands it, and I don't know. I just want, I, he's, they're, they're so clearly defined, it makes me think, that's why I was asking if you think they're flatter, because they're so, their contours are so, are so, so shaped. Yeah. There's not a lot of room for other sides of the character, like with the, like the way that. Brad Pitt uh, plays Billy Bean. It's a lot, a lot different from what's the what's what's the what's uh, Kevin Costner's Crash?
1: Crash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I I think they're not really. It's not a fair comparison. I think you could contrast them. Yeah. But Moneyball, in the end, is about the business of Major League Baseball, right? Yeah. Are we going to use stats? Are we going to use uh, scouting? What do we have to prove to continue to make money? Because in the end, our job is to win to make money, right? It's a business. In Bull Durham, it's minor league. It's about the people who keep minor league going. Like, you need to have this dedicated, small fan base in its community that wants it to succeed, so it's it's just different. It's about the lost dreams of someone who wants to be in the major league. Like it's it's just it's just different. I don't I don't think it's a fair comparison. No,
2: but let's get back to what Soderbergh was saying on the topic because mm-hmm. for him it was really about the presentation of characters in a baseball film, and whether or not they ring true. And he wanted to create something more immersive than Bull Durham. So for Soderbergh, the characters in Bull Durham. Mm-hmm ring true and and was a template form so it's not about the the subject matter of the film in any way it's just about compared to other baseball films how are these characters presented and other baseball films they are primarily flat i would say yeah yeah
0: there is there is the the lone tobacco chewing you mm -hmm. know uh they, I'm trying to think of all the like. What are all the other other field of dreams? They, Eight what? Men Out. Yeah. Okay. What
2: are, yeah. The, you know, all the characters in Eight Men Out are there to serve a purpose. The natural. Of the natural. Oh, yeah. All there to serve a purpose for the story. Yeah. They they aren't full characters. You know, I watch Bull Durham. I get a joy out of just watching how those actors are bringing the characters across. Mm-hmm. Tim Robbins is the best dolt I have ever seen. But he has a growth by the end of the film, too, where in the last scene with him and Kevin Costner, he's intentionally saying something just to irk him,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which means he knows what's going on now.
1: Well, and he knows how to push Kevin Costner's buttons, yeah. which Kevin Costner has been doing throughout uh-huh. the film <laughs> to Tim Robbins uh-huh. to get him to pay attention yeah. and to get him to see his own shortcomings, right? It's like the whole yeah. scene. When he's like, throw the baseball at my chest. Yeah. I'll kill you. Come on. no. And then he starts <laughs> fucking with his head. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And then Tim Robbins has finally gotten to the point where you can say, oh, no, now I know how to fuck with him. Yeah. And maybe Kevin Costner's character will learn something out of it. Maybe he'll get something out of this moment. Hmm. Probably not. But what
2: he learned, he learned from Annie. In, in that he gave up the game. He, he hit his dinger and he... Hung it up, and that was it. So I think for him, his learning came from Annie and learning to appreciate other aspects of life rather than just chase the show.
1: Right, but I even feel like Annie's character, in spite of how quirky and interesting she was, (laughs) really is just... She's just that woman who's in every movie who teaches a man who just doesn't get it to be a little more appreciative of life because isn't that what women are for? You, it's but it's, she's
0: still a badass. She right? is right. She it's is, like, but, it's, but no, yeah. I, I'm going to your point. It's yeah. like that. It's like you get yeah. to yeah, yeah, you get to make the argument, but you also get to to, to like usher in all of the stereotypes at the same time. Like, you, yeah, we get this badass female lead, or you know. But she's still gonna do all the traditional things that yeah. the, the, the taming and the you know all that kind of shit.
1: Yeah. 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 Right? She's gonna tie Tim Robbins down and yeah. teach him to love literature. Yeah, yeah. And you know, she's gonna be overwhelmed by Kevin Costner's speech about long, slow, wet kisses. I mean give me a break. Give me a break. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: But you see, I think the way (laughs) all of that is presented, it never gets saccharine, and and it's never presented as more important than it is, which is what I really love about the film, is that it it really appreciates the tradition of baseball, but it's also poking a lot of fun at it at the same Mm -hmm. time. Yeah
1: well and and even at annie's self-importance i teach oh, yeah. three classes at a community college
2: <laughs> well, and yeah.
1: i i pick someone to i mean she doesn't say it this way but see and i pick someone to fuck every year yeah, yeah and demand that they love literature by the time they leave
2: well and you see and that comes right after what i think is one of the best lines in the film because kevin costner says who are you mm-hmm. and she says what and he says Who are you? Who dresses like that? (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a shortcut to what you were talking about. He's annoyed by her quirkiness. Mm -hmm. He's annoyed by whatever this thing is that she's doing.
1: Right. Because it's all obviously performative for her. This isn't who she is. This is... This is how she keeps herself relevant mm-hmm. while she's busily teaching part-time at the local community college, yeah. which obviously irks her because she feels she has more to give. And I mm-hmm. get that. All these characters are fleshed out. They tell you a lot in those moments. Oh. Yeah, but, that... s- but still, in the end, she, in spite of you know her wanting more and thinking she has more to give, she still ends up being the one who's just supposed to tame the young buck and bring the older guy to the realizations of the greater gifts of life. And...
2: But, but here's the thing. I think there's a lot more depth to it because that scene we were talking about in, in his uh, apartment, mm-hmm. that scene ends with her saying to him, you're scared. But isn't she scared too? Isn't that why she takes the affectation she does and has a ball player every year because she can't commit to a relationship?
1: I, I don't think she has I, a lot of options in that town. I would small say it's town. a survival mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I get out of it more than fear. It's to I mean, she she seems stuck there and she's doing what she can to keep herself relevant and entertained and engaged in a city or town where. Most people are just coming and going.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's true.
0: Have you watched these back-to-back? Bull, Bull Durham and Moneyball?
2: No, by Bull Durham <laughs> memorized.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. He does. How many times have
0: you
2: seen it? Well, I saw it in the theater when it came out, dude. Yeah. I- I've seen it, oh, I don't know how many times. Hundreds? Not hundreds, but uh, I'd say probably 50.
0: Yeah. You got it memorized, though? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, couple, yeah. They, they, there's, there's all kinds of little things. that look. You have fungus. <laughs> On your shower shoes. What? When you hit the majors and have fungus on your shower shoes, the press will think you're cute. Until then, you're just a slob. You're eccentric. It's this division of how things are. Yeah. yeah. That's a theme in the whole movie. How things are perceived, how is Annie perceived by the community as well? it has different layers to it beyond which in essence, it's a romantic comedy is what it is,
1: yeah, I yeah. should
2: not love this film as much as I love it if it were not for the layers and the characters that were created. I mean all the ball players have mm-hmm. great moments, yeah, mm-hmm. you know all the little ones and, and You know, I mean, and Millie, who that actress I don't think has gotten credit for the role. I think she's really great in it. But I love that exchange where she comes by the ball players. You know, she's hugging one. She's coming down the line. And she says, hi, I'm Millie. And this other player says, hi, I'm married. (laughs) (laughs) And she's kind of, she doesn't know what to do with it. Because that's not the reaction she should get. But just very little things... Little lines are given a chance to shine in the film. Well, because I told you
1: that all the guys have been discussing Millie. Yeah.
2: And probably in not
1: very nice terms.
2: No, but also... And that
1: this is what women are subjected to. But
2: there's also the line from Crash. He says, if anyone says anything bad about Millie, I'm going to kick your ass. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she's she makes the rounds in the team, but the team yeah, is also the, protective of her.
1: Yeah, because yeah. no one complains when... Men who are in baseball are making the rounds. I mean, what, wasn't it just a big joke that Steve Garvey was the father of our country? Yeah. Like, he had fucked around so much and had so many kids. I, I don't remember what the yeah. actual number was, but that was the basis of the joke.
2: Yeah, the the other thing comparing Moneyball to Bull Durham is Moneyball, uh, all those characters are fixated on one thing taking place.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think Bull Durham is that argument of the love of the game versus the Mm -hmm. corporatization, right? Because he insists that Tim Robbins' character, what is his name?
2: Uh, nuke. Nuke. Nuke Lelouch. That
1: nuke understands that the owner of that dive bar, right, was was what Crash considered a great baseball player, that he had these stats behind, Mm that he had chops, and he deserved respect. Mm Mm-hmm for who he was and shame on nuke for not knowing who this guy was right but at the same time he's also spending all his time teaching nuke the things he needs to know to engage with that corporate mlb right your shower shoes need to be clean you need to have your speeches down you need to be able to stand up to pressure i'm going to show you because you're not even going to be able to hit my head with that baseball and you're 15 feet away from me
2: Yep.
1: right all those things It's 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 very similar. Those pieces are very similar to the conversations we have around music and the importance Mm -hmm. of knowing the history of music, even if you want to be successful. Versus these shows where you are nobody and you're launched into this contrived stardom. Yeah. Um, you know the importance of knowing the history of whatever it is you want to get into and honoring it and honoring the people involved in that
2: history. Yeah. Yeah, I just think Bull Durham is about life, and Moneyball is about achieving an objective. And I don't think, like you said, I don't think it's necessarily a comparison. Mm-hmm. But Soderbergh was just talking about presentation of characters in a baseball film. Mm-hmm. And-
1: I don't know, I've just become a huge fan of Jonah Hill, too, which yeah. I think always Excuse me. He's. I yeah. mean, he's good in every, he immerses himself, Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God.
2: We should actually do that film, too. Okay. We can do that. Our next clip is a long-delayed follow-up for our discussion about the film Rocket Man. John and I talked about Rocket Man way back in September of 2019, and he had not seen the film at the time of that discussion and was adamant that he was not going to see the film. A year and a half later, John did see the movie Rocket Man, And we got together to finish our discussion in February of 2021. And now in April of 2022, I finally have an avenue to share that discussion with you. Hello, John. Hello. How are you?
0: I'm doing fine on this gray afternoon.
2: Good. We are going to touch back on a film that we talked about, which was our second or third episode. One of those early Early, early, we had technical difficulties, as I recall. The whole thing almost dumped (laughs) because I didn't plug in the netbook that we were recording on at the time. And a much different space. We're sitting here in the studio, but I think back then, we were having that conversation in the middle of what was still basically a Mm -hmm. workshop surrounded by tools and workbenches on... Uh, on outdoor tables.
0: Now it's fully decked out, lava lamp style, the whole thing. I need a lava lamp, you do. dude. I
2: that's the one thing I'm missing. I do have a disco ball on remote control here dig, though. Dig. So we got that vibe going. Things have changed since we first talked about Rocket Man. Indeed they have. And I think the biggest thing that has changed since we were talking about Rocket Man initially is you have actually seen the movie now. I watched the movie. Because we had this conversation. (laughs) As I recall, you came to the conversation not having seen the movie. Correct. And you were adamant that you would not see the movie. And correct me if I'm wrong here. Because you have this 1970s image of Elton John. And you did not want that spoiled by Taron Egerton's portrayal of Elton John. And you did not want Taryn Edgerton's voice replacing Elton John's voice in your mind.
0: Absolutely. It's the same. It's just like the Doris film, right? Where you, you see Val Kilmer and then all of a sudden you start associating Jim
2: Morrison with Val Kilmer.
0: And there's
2: two different beasts. So I think question number one for you is what led you to watch the film that you were so adamantly opposed to watching? I broke down. <laughs> Detail this. What what happened? What led to the breakdown?
0: I was thinking about it. When did I watch this? I think I watched it a month ago, something like that. I was thinking, all right, you know, the movie it's now out and available, and you know, and ease of access it was always there, but you know, it's kind of I, I had seen it advertised a couple of times on whatever streaming thing I was on, and then I turned to my wife and I said you know what let's give Rocket Man a shot and um, my reasoning inside my head was I'm gonna keep 70's Elton frozen right like I'm gonna there's this period this golden period in Elton's career which we detailed I think in the last time, the episode of, like 1970 to 1975 76 I'm gonna see that's my Elton John and there will not be a voice powerful enough even Elton's own terrible 80's music is not powerful enough to replace the ideal of the Elton that I hold in those five to six years. So I
2: figured, fuck it. It's a movie. I'm going to watch it, and let's see how it goes. So you felt you had a sufficient firewall built yes. up that you could protect your 1970s image of Elton John, regardless of what may come, whether whether it be Too Low for Zero <laughs> or whether it be Taron Egerton.
0: Right. Too low for zero, though. We should note is a good record from the '80s. It
2: is a good record. We can we can rattle off
0: the uh, the, one, the
2: slush pile, but uh, yeah, the one. Runaway train came off of his collaboration with Eric Clapton was not a great album.
0: Oh, the one. No, was- oh no, was that wasn't the one? That was the one before that with um, club at the end of the street. In the club oh, at yeah, the yeah, end yeah, of the yeah. street, that's where we meet. I can't. The sacrifice was, I was sacrifices on that.
2: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. What, what so, album did the song? Oh, breaking hearts. Breaking you, you hearts. Know, that's a great album. You oh, like breaking hearts? Yeah.
0: Well, not all the songs, but um, I think the first, I think the first five, and okay. and then it gets, and then it gets weird. So some '80s Elton. Yeah, is. but it's just the the '80s Elton to me isn't the isn't. It just, it, it's more about the the pomp in the 80s. Got it. The 70s, sure, it's full of pomp, but the musicianship and the integrity. I'm not saying that it wasn't there in the 80s. I just think the band was so tight. His songwriting was so on point. Bernie's lyrics were so... It was just this magical period. And what, what has he got, like 11 records that, or 12 mm-hmm. records that come out of that period? Like seven, number one, just straight to number one. I mean, it's just Unbelievable. So, I decided that that's my Elton John, and that everything else is extraneous okay. because he's done other stuff that i've you know I thought like you know, he did the candle in the wind for yeah. Princess Diana, which you know I'm not a fan of that track um I think it's kind of weird yeah. um but uh you know whatever it hasn't disturbed my image of Elton. I saw the Lion King and you know all that sh- so okay, I can handle Rocket man
2: now, my view of Rocket Man is very early on you're either gonna go with it or you're not yeah and if you're not it's gonna be a hard knot. and if you are you're gonna go yeah it's because it opens with him going to rehab in a very dramatic fashion absolutely and quickly monopolizing the group discussion yeah and what were your feelings as you started to watch it
0: i was. i stopped trying to put facts together so that's that definitely freed me and so what I started to see was you had made the comment that you thought the movie captured Elton. Yes. It's not an accurate factual reflection of a chronology or anything like that. It's the, the essence or the, the spirit or the char- character of the person, yes. right? Yeah. So I think I was looking at it that way and I was thinking, okay, so I always view Elton through and I'm looking I, I always just view him through a musical lens. I don't really look at the attitude and the diva and all that kind of stuff. It's just the music. I thought it I thought it was a little bit overacted in the in the initial scene. I don't think he captured Elton the way Elton's snottiness comes across because yeah. if you've seen Elton pout.
2: Yeah. He can get his pout on. Oh, but he yeah. but he
0: doesn't do this like I thought that is it Eagerton, Taren, Egerton? Taron Egerton? Uh, Taron Egerton. Egerton. He had this... I thought he had too much confidence in that scene. Mm, as yeah. I, I, he, he didn't come across as a... Uh, he came across as a confident snot, not an insecure little child. And if you've seen Elton Pout in any context, oh, he man. is a baby. Oh, yeah. oh, my God. Give me a break. Yeah. Like tantrums and tiaras. Oh, my.
2: I have not seen that. Oh, yet. my
0: God. It's, it's unwatchable. It's... <laughs> No. Just imagine, wa- yeah. imagine watching some, like someone who's histrionic for
2: an hour and a half. Yeah. It's a nightmare. Anyway, um, because this was kind of a double whammy of a film for you, because you're not a fan of musicals either, and no. this was a musical more than any other biopic. One.
0: And I think that's what probably took me out of so much out of uh-huh. um, Elton's life, and focusing more on and focusing on the facts, and just accepting the movie for what it was as a, a way to create an impression of a figure or an icon um, of that person's character. So I thought that all of the, the musical elements actually f- fit really well. There's a really interesting quote. Um, have you ever seen the, the making of goodbye, the road documentary? No, not it's yet. so good. Yeah. Oh my God. So they go and record in France, the Chateau de Rovue, uh, same place where the grateful dead used to record and um there's a <laughs> his producer Gus Didgen says uh you know the thing about Elton was that you he could write in any style right and some of his songs actually do have a musical-like quality mm-hmm. to them right in that the chorus and then you know characters and Toppin was really good at painting characters for you know like Goodbye Yellow Book Road album is full of Danny Bailey and uh, all the young Alice and dirty little girl and, and, and all that stuff. So when I started thinking about Elton's life more in the context of theater it made it made more sense. I got it. Like l- viewing it through that lens because I hate I loathe musicals. They just drive me insane. I can't
2: walk. I feel a song coming yeah, exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And I felt like if that kind of overblown again histrionic behavior was you know reflective of his reality then it's it's the perfect context or the perfect you know device to use to tell the story so i didn't actually have a problem with the musical and i and i loved some of the elements um like the part you mentioned when he when he starts floating on the piano Uh, oh that was great and you know and the whole audience yeah and the whole yeah and you know it's 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 really cool because um, – I thought that was really cool because it's not it's – you're not looking at it literally, right? You're you're looking at it more from like an impressionistic or a sensory – like this is what it felt like to yes. be at the Troubadour at the time, not this
2: is what happened at the Troubadour at and the time. And maybe not. Maybe that was how it felt for him that they're conveying. He, for him, I would – I don't know. I've read a bunch of reviews from the
0: Troubadour and people were – went fucking apeshit in wow. the audience. Wow. Went crazy. Leon Russell in the first row. You know, Diamond introduced uh-huh. him. I mean, all that shit. So I th- I thought that they really covered Elton. This might be another thing. I always put Elton and Bernie together. Yes. I never separate them. And the movie separates The them. movie separates them. So there's Elton. I don't really like Elton, like as a personality. Yeah. He, he just is utterly distasteful to me. Like, he's just... He's, he's a he's a brat. Let's put it that sure. way. And I've always been more drawn to Bernie as, you know, someone who's more thoughtful and, you know, reflective. And Elton has always seemed to me just to be kind of like a... an insanely talented, really bitchy workhorse. You know what I mean? He just works and works and works. And, you know, an attention whore and all that. There's all that kind of stuff. And that, I just can't identify with those parts of his character. So... I think that was another part with the film is like, Bernie is there, but it's he's kind of tangential to the story. And I've never just considered Elton as Elton without his, you know, other half, you know, writing half, so to speak. So that was interesting to look at. And it, I think it made me like Elton even less oh. um, as just not musically, but yeah. just, yeah, on a but as a person, I just I—I I don't know him as a person, but as, as, as a as a as a media figure, you know. I mean, like some of the stuff I've read about him. Did I tell the one where he asked? He he got so upset one day. He asked his manager if they could do something about the weather outside the hotel. No. Yeah. So he—I he, mean, he used to do shit like that, and I used to read those books and those biographies and think, "Oh, what an asshole!" But then you see it enacted. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> kind of brings it to life, and it makes sense. But they you know they everyone in his circle, all the reports you know from whether it's from Bernie, whether it's from Gus Dijon, whether it's from Davy Johnson the guitar player, they all say that Elton could be you know sweet as could be, but he could be the fucking devil incarnate yeah. and I, I think the movie captured that those swings really yeah. really well you know visually it was, it was good um, and also Egerton's voice, didn't really sound like Elton, I thought. So I thought that was another good thing that he, they didn't, or maybe they tried, but it, it, whatever happened didn't end up becoming an Elton replica. It was like his take on Elton.
2: But in our initial discussion, we never got around to grading the film. We did it? No. we Well, you hadn't seen it, so you couldn't say how it was as a film. Yeah. And I think I went with a facts be damned kind of attitude oh, okay. on it.
0: Yeah, oh, you did say facts be yeah. damned. That
2: there's really n- no way to apply our usual logic of fact checking to the film. Okay. So I say we leave the letter grade out of it. Okay. And talking about it. But since I have you here for the follow up, we'll go ahead and wrap it up by asking you on a scale of one to four stars what would you give Rocket Man now that you've seen it? Solid three out of four. Solid three. I would go with a three as well. Uh, thoroughly enjoyable film. Mm-hmm. Love the music. Love the visuals. Yeah. I like that piece in the pool with the kid at the bottom. Oh,
0: yeah. that's a, that, yeah. And
2: it looks like they did that in water, really. It does not look like dry for wet. Oh, wow. And it doesn't look like CG. It, it looks like they really did film that in water. And I thought that was a really interesting visual. That whole sequence that follows where he's pulled out of the pool and it's in silhouette and he's being yeah. just about being propped up to go out to perform. Yeah, You, you are now a, a commodity Absolutely. that needs to be sold and there's people there. And uh, whether or not you've attempted suicide doesn't matter. You still got to go out and sing the songs. Yep. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put that aspect of show business out there.
0: Yeah, I think so. Although I would say I think Elton agrees with that aspect of show business. Yeah, one hundred percent. I don't even think you you can read his quotes. He would, in the early days he would say to audiences, "I'll play with you if I have one finger left," and he just give these monstrous concerts <laughs> They would go on on and on and on. So, you know, and also I think he would he would always cancel on TV people, blah blah blah, but he never canceled on a live audience uh, uh, intentionally. Like if if, I know in Australia, he had a, uh, like a cyst or something in his throat and he almost got cancer or it was, they thought it might be malignant. But from all the reports, what they say is he never let down a live audience. Wow. Is that it was all about the live show to him. So he was into that aspect of it. So it's interesting that he's being propped up, but it's also what he wants.
2: Yeah, that's true. Well, John, thank you for joining me. I'm glad you've seen rocket man. Uh, what is it a year and a half after the fact and but hey better late than never we got to discuss it give it a grade and uh, and yeah of all the films the facts don't matter on this one yeah i, I can let it go because it captures elton yeah all right well thank you john thank you for the four seasons we have been producing this podcast i have wanted to have a conversation about biopics and the harm that can come from them I've also wanted to talk about how my intention is for biopics mostly suck to serve a purpose beyond just entertainment, that maybe through having these discussions with my cohorts, we can help to create an awareness for the viewer to have a more jaundiced eye while watching the entertainment they consume. This opportunity for the discussion came during our recording sessions for the trial of the Chicago 7, when we diverted from a discussion about Aaron Sorkin the writer and director of that film, into that discussion that I have wanted to have with Don and John. Please enjoy this next clip where we talk about how people's lives are depicted in biopics, the legitimacy that exists in different points of view, and why a biopic is never just a movie. When did he write it? Ah, uh, He was asked by Spielberg to write it in 06.
0: Okay, so it had been brewing for for a period.
2: He had been working on it for a while. Okay. And at the time Spielberg asked him if he would write a movie based on the Chicago 7. He said, great. And then he went to research who the Chicago 7 were.
1: (laughs) That seems so weird to me because he's a bit older than we are, isn't he?
2: he How do you
1: not know who the Chicago 7 are? I mean, even if you weren't very tapped into politics... How?
0: Because he comes across like if I watch again, I will just put The West Wing as a reference point, or even even this film. He, he comes across as an expert in whatever the subject is. We're talking whether it's politics. Okay, so is Sorkin a guy that is a is a serious expert in these small this is, this wouldn't be small, but in these in these areas. When he has to research, we research them for a film, mm-hmm. or when he has to research them for a television show. Because mm-hmm. I, I when I, I mean, I think when I that's surprising that Sorkin, who are the Chicago Seven, I would think that he'd be like, "Fuck yeah, let's make the movie today," you know.
2: Well, well, he did say that to Stephen. But, but I
0: mean, knowing what he would be making,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: he, yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. No, his response was yes, yeah. Yes, he, But the yes
1: that yeah. John is talking about. Yeah. Is an informed yes, and that's not what it was.
2: No, and I think what you are talking about circles back to that smartest guy in the room thing, huh? Yeah, oh. is that
0: what? Oh, is, what is Sorkin like? Do do we know any Hollywood stories about what Sorkin is is like um, as a person, as a director?
2: No, I've seen a couple interviews with him, okay. and uh, uh, saw an interview with him when he uh, was doing uh, To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway. Mark Maron did an interview with him. On his podcast. Mm-hmm. That was a good that, that was pretty good. I would say in interview Sorkin comes across like his characters do. I was going to on, on the page. Very, very much in that way. And, and I think this really was highlighted with Molly's Game and the character of Jaffe played by mm-hmm. Idris Elba. in that, yeah, Ooh. Idris mm-hmm. Elba.
1: Idris Elba.
2: That's when I first realized he tends to channel himself through multiple characters or th- certain characters. I think in Chicago seven, that whole speech Hayden gives to Abby Hoffman about uh. his concern about, uh, the movement being tied so much to Abby Hoffman. I, that sounds very much like Sorkin's concerns more than anything Hayden would say.
0: So are, we, this reminds me very much of, uh, conversations that we've had about Oliver Stone.
2: Mm. Oh yeah. In a yeah. sense
0: that the, the, we're seeing historical representations of Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> or versions of his mm-hmm. his psyche, in spread out among these characters.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really interesting. I mean, at this point, I could just see the West Wing main characters as being fragmentations of Aaron Sorkin's psyche. Yeah. In many ways. Yeah.
0: yeah. So then, the danger becomes, as at least as I'm perceiving it. Over the last, I don't know, 10, 10 to fifteen years, it does seem that biopics, in a sense, have. I mean, documentaries are still popular, but biopics, people do run with that fa- information as fact, and they take it as. like, mm-hmm. I mean, especially people who don't particularly read or don't mm-hmm. aren't really interested in history. They'll but they'll learn it through entertainment. Oh yeah, and you get the and you get this kind of danger. It's the same kind of thing with the like. To Oliver Stone, like the Doors film, right? Mm-hmm. It's like this mm-hmm. complete romanticization of, 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 Morrison. Um, and as everyone who knew him watched, like that was that's not the Jim I knew. That ain't the, oh. that's right. Oliver Stone. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. and that's one reason we do this podcast. The uh, I, uh, the, the movie The Blind Side. I, I think the football player's real name is Michael Oher, if I recall, and he has said that. Because of how he was portrayed in the film, that has affected how people treat him and opportunities he's received within the NFL. He was so much more accomplished than the movie shows. Well, the and, movie and, showed and him the, his
1: development and he's late, didn't it?
2: A, a little bit, yeah. But it's uh, But these things have real-world implications when liberties are taken to greater or lesser degrees. Yeah. And when it's to greater degrees, it can really sully someone's reputation because... My concern is if you're that main character you ever see, um, remember the Titans? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, well that football coach, uh, some football players say that he actually started to mold into Denzel Washington's portrayal of him when he went on the public speaking circuit, that he became that character more than he was the person they knew and I think if you're benefiting off of it with speaking engagements, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But if you're that one football player who's portrayed wrongly, and the only thing anyone's ever going to know about you is that portrayal, that's where I think extra responsibility is needed when it comes to liberties.
0: Interesting. There's a, this is going digging, there's a connection to the uh, to the late 60s and um, social protests and movements, but going back to the fifties and the beats Mm. when Kerouac wrote on the road and he wrote the character of Dean Moriarty based on Neil Cassidy. What almost everyone says is that that was what he wrote was one dimension of a particular character. Mm -hmm. And subsequently Neil Cassidy increasingly adapted to and molded Mm -hmm. himself into the character in the novel and became a caricature of his. and, And it was, it was something that was, he knew, but it wasn't in the entirety of his being. It wasn't the whole. But he became he became that trapped in that character, and yeah. he became known as that character. And you can see these appearances of him, like you know, with the merry pranksters doing crazy. Mm-hmm. And he, it's he was a wild, insane guy, but at the same time, Kerouac paints him as just this manic, you know, and powerhouse of you know strapping it, and he has to fit all these stereotypes, and it, uh, it, yeah, he it can really fuck with someone's reputation
2: well and you know that's why i take offense at the response of it's just a movie I, I think well maybe if no one goes to see it it's just a movie if if it becomes popular and people take in what is said it can have real world effects uh, argo the yeah. british embassy was pissed off that in argo it was said they refused to take the americans in that that's not what really happened in real life and it caused real world diplomatic problems with just that portrayal in the movie.
0: Yeah, and to say it's 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 just a movie, um that would negate that's like saying well it's just an album or it's just a a book to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I would make harder arguments for books, but or if you want to maybe classify something as a film, I don't know if you want to get into that ranking, you know, hierarchical system. But you know what I mean. Um, it's kind of it's just dismissive. It's it acts it 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 stands as if the, these things don't matter. And it's like they do matter to people. Movies matter to people.
1: So, I, and I can't remember the theory, but when you were talking about Neil Cassidy and how he became more of the caricature of himself, and you were talking about. Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans, and how this person started to emulate some of what he saw Denzel in Denzel's portrayal of him. Um, there's that theory of once you know you're being watched, it automatically changes mm. your behavior.
0: Heisenberg uncertainty. Pr- no, no. Um, inter- Wait, is that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle? I can't that, remember. No, that's too. You can never know the exact.
1: Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to look fuck it up. Damn it, because it's. It, it feels almost like a a tangential piece to that, like a, a branch of what it could be, because it's not the exact same thing. But you're being impacted by how the world is looking at you, even though it's not the cameras on you at the moment.
0: But eyes are—I mean, eyes. If if the book created a caricature, then the eyes are all eyes are cameras. I mean, in that sense, yeah. when people say it's just a movie, it's it's not acknowledging the fact that movies mean things to people and people love genuinely love movies or films or what any form of they, these things matter and they matter in an aesthetic sense they matter in a personal sense and an emotional sense but like you're saying they matter in a larger contextual sense in terms of creating an image and especially with biopics you have a literal image you know, of a person's life. I grew up, so going back to the Val Kilmer, uh, Oliver Stone, Doors film. I grew up, you know, a Doris fan. But when I was growing up, there wasn't, you know, access to, I mean, you had, best thing I had was like the poster, the crucified Morrison, mm-hmm. you know, that everyone has. But it, well, I couldn't look up all this shit about Morrison and have all these images. So my vision of Jim Morrison was largely a vision of Val Kilmer visually you know um not sonically but and my interpretation of jim morrison's life was for a very long time a very romanticized kind of you know self-loathing artist pitted against the society oliver stone (laughs) typical oliver stone film and you know, and then you read other stuff, and that you find out that's not the case. And I think that, you know, that like, okay, Jim Morrison, that's not, he's dead, supposedly. But with people who still are around, and, and you're talking about how they're perceived, how it, like you're saying, it affects how they, if they get work or not, mm-hmm. and the type of work they get. So uh, on that level, you know, I could see someone saying, making a stronger case for it's just a film. But it, at the same time, like that Doris movie, that meant the world to me. Mm-hmm. It really meant something to me. And I really identified with the character as it was portrayed, as he was portrayed at the time. And you can't ignore that. And you can't ignore its consequences, either. Yeah. Entertainment...
2: This is a fucking entertainment complex, man, and it it matters to people in real ways. Oh, and the Doors film, even when it was being filmed in Los Angeles, it was news constantly during the filming. It was because I was working at Tower Records at the time, and it it was a thing. You always heard about they're looking for extras to be on Sunset Boulevard or uh, Billy Idol had his motorcycle crash during the filming of that movie. Which is oh. why he's walking with a cane in the film. Oh, no shit. No okay. shit. He has a broken leg. So, um, I, I mean, constant news about it. And we saw Ray Manzarek and Michael McClure, I think, during that same time while the movie was being filmed. Mm-hmm. And Ray Manzarek is very much I... one of the people who is uh, floats the Morrison could still be around yeah. thing. So, he yeah. plays on that. But, yeah, it was definitely a thing. And then we saw it at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. And you were talking about the romanticizing of it. Afterwards, I'm waiting around the restrooms. Uh, Some of our group went to the bathroom. And I heard some girls nearby saying, oh, you know what we should do? We should go out to the desert and smoke peyote. And I'm going, you really didn't get the point of the film, Mm. did you? About the self-destructive aspects that were being brought forth, which is a theme in Stone's work anyway. Look at Platoon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing I would argue back with Stone. Here's the problem. I think he portrays the self-destructive aspects, but I've got a major fucking problem with Stone's view on w- how he regards immortality. Mm-hmm. He he makes this it if you watch the interviews on with him on the um, on the making of the doors and all that shit, um, it, it it almost makes me sick. Um, he gets really emotional at one point and he says, He's talking about how much he misses Jim Morrison. I'm like, you didn't fucking know him. Like, okay. okay. And like, I miss him. And he's like a te- tear rolls down his. Chest. Anyway, he's talking about this, and he says, in the end, Morrison is the he's the the peak of a life. He's the acme of an existence. Right. Um, he's Alexander the Great. He's and he goes through this list of you know people who died young and noble and heroic and blah and. To me, that's the message that that movie put across, which mm-hmm. is fucking... That's really dangerous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Read any biography of Jim James Douglas Morrison. That was not a good guy to hang around very often. Mm-hmm. A dangerous guy to be around. Uh, and that comes across a little bit in the film, but it seems like it's fun in the film.
2: Well, he's a poet, and it's all so romantic. Right. And... I went.
0: I've been to his grave three times, and the first time I... You remember the ending scene of the Doris film, mm-hmm. and he's reciting the poetry where we want to Raven's smooth as Raven's claws where we want to have angel wings and it's doing that tour through Père Lachaise and again, that's a very romantic, it's, it's a fucking, I remember go, going there, my first instinct and my first re- reaction was, why is this a tourist destination? Why are they selling maps of the cemetery? It was really off putting to me. And then when I got to the grave I found it utterly, you know, just disrespectful. I found people, you know, flicking out cigarettes and put it was just like it felt like desecration. And I get that it would be in the in the spirit of Morrison, but how do you know how do you know what's in the spirit of Mor it just and that ending scene in the film it makes you want to go to those places. Yeah. But it's like what are you what are you going to see? Where someone died a miserable death.
2: Because people are internalizing that romanticization yeah. uh, in themselves, and uh, to them, Jim Morrison is a representation of that, and they can be close to it in some way. It's it's weird. I remember uh, we went to New York one time, and the same week we were there, George Harrison had passed.
1: Mm. Oh, that was so... Yeah.
2: And we, we went to Strawberry Fields in Central Park, and there were flowers that were on top of the Imagine Mosaic, which is mm-hmm. for John Lennon. And, and I remember there were some guys there with a boombox who were playing Beatles music, but it didn't seem like they were there in honor. It seemed like they were there to be noticed.
1: They were. The guy holding the boombox said, okay, everyone start singing together because we'll end up on the news. It it was just really disgusting. And it was evident that nobody there even understood that Strawberry Fields was there for John Lennon, that George Harrison Mm -hmm. had his own contributions to music Mm -hmm. and the influence that he was on musicians and the contributions he made both as a Beatle and as a solo artist, um, just in, in what he brought into music. So when
0: you different. were there, people thought that the Strawberry Fields Memorial w- was like designated for George Harrison?
1: No, it was just treated like a general Beatles okay. yeah. space. Hmm. And, and I could maybe see it for an initial gathering, but it was so the morning was so cynical and yeah. calculated yeah. and there were some people there who were just genuinely sad. Cause he had just, he had died just a couple of days before we landed back in New York. And, um, so we wanted to go, um, you know, just to, to pay some respects and, and what we had hoped would be a gathering of people who cared about George Harrison, but they just wanted to be noticed for the most part. And it mm-hmm. was really gross But I think that goes back to the appeal of these films, these movies, where they romanticize tragedy, where they play up tropes, Mm -hmm. and this superficiality to it. Because in, in the end, people like Oliver Stone continue to be able to make movies because people either count on them for truth and fact, they, they give them a trust that that will happen, that they haven't earned, mm-hmm. or they just are lazy and lack intellectual curiosity.
0: Well, because didn't Oliver Stone do that series, The Untold History of the United States?
1: He it, might have. I don't. It, I don't know. He did
0: something like that. It was like the secret history or the the real history, or it was like oh god, yeah, it was Save just, us it was from a, Oliver Stone. I know, but it was it was basically Oliver Stone's spin on U.S. history. <laughs> and but it was but it was like the untold. I can't remember what the title was, but something to that effect. But again, it just was. It was an Oliver Stone documentary. <laughs> it was like you. <laughs> it, it, it was a series actually. You knew I. I knew what he was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I knew which examples he was going to select. And this is yeah, so yeah, it's dangerous and you when we're talking about the line between I don't know, do you blur it? I mean art, art and entertainment.
2: Uh, I think you can, but yeah. but I think it seems that filmmakers who who use the defense of it's just a film try to have it both ways they they want their movie and their presentation on this real life topic or this real life person to to be a presentation of that person mm-hmm. but at the same time if there's criticism about liberties that were taken to varying degrees they'll say it's just a movie you can't have it both ways mm-hmm. it either matters or it doesn't matter and which one i mean and even when there's best intentions we talked about hidden figures yeah great intentions if you watch Were the, there? if you watch the behind the scenes footage everyone involved with the film is talking about honoring these women and bringing their accomplishments to light but uh, as we talked about the presentation bringing all the Jim Crow in there that didn't actually exist to that degree within NASA which was non-segregated in 61 the fact that Dorothy Vaughn, achieved her supervisory role in 48 and not 61 Mm -hmm. actually during Jim Crow is even more amazing and we talked about how much they took away from these women just by how they decided to frame it and make race the primary opposition to everything they were doing rather than just learning what they have to learn in order to get the roles that they achieved um so you know we questioned about the best intentions and what the outcome was. So, back on the romanticization of Jim Morrison, if if Morrison were not presented in such a romantic fashion, uh, let's say Morrison were presented more true to what he was, or let's say he let's say he was presented like Bukowski in, fact, in factotum. I, I was going to say Raging Bull. Okay, yeah, sure. If he got the Raging Bull treatment, where warts and all, he was presented. How do you think he would be seen as an artist down the line just from the Doors film? Do you th- do you think his status would have been elevated, that he would have been romanticized? Because Jake Lamont is not romanticized. No, he is not. Oh,
0: man.
1: Nor
2: is Bukowski.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, the thing with Morrison, though, is that he wanted to look like Alexander the Great, and he wanted all that shit in a certain sense. He wanted that. Achilles forever young dying in a blaze of glory he didn't want to grow old um or at least according to him and mm-hmm. other other people around him but i think it would make i think it would just make him less sexy
1: mm-hmm.
0: or his that that um that life that's depicted i think it like raging bull, there ain't nothing sexy about Jake LaMotta. No. you know, um, but Morrison gets, and he because he was such a sex symbol, right? But at the he gets the, the real male sexuality treatment mm-hmm. from, and that, and I think that it, that bleeds over into other areas. So I think like the music, the the image, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think it, it would be less appealing and less yeah. attractive. Mm -hmm. but also more real in a sense. I I don't know. And
2: and I think, you know, what we're talking about is everything has context to it. And, And I think what happens in taking liberties is the context are removed and the understanding of why things happen sometimes may be too much to go into in a two hour movie. So things are simplified. People's motivations are simplified. Uh, People's personalities are simplified. I think it is the rare director who can take something really complicated and make it entertaining. And when I say that, I'm thinking The Informant mm. by Steven Soderbergh. That was a movie that when we talked about it, tracked very, very true to what happened. And that's a complicated issue. But it was also done in an entertaining way and in a very, very true way at the same time and a creative way with the way Soderbergh handled mental illness, where it was never something that was up front, but kind of snuck up on the viewer in just the same way it snuck up on Mark Whitaker. Hmm. Yeah. And, And that's why I enjoy doing these conversations is because we are able to bring that context into it. We are, we're able to highlight things that matter to the story that may have gotten missed in the film, and I really enjoy having the conversations with both of you. By the time we come to these conversations, I've usually been into the topic for two or three weeks, and I'm really amazed that you don't you don't do any research on it, do you, Don? No. No. And John? I wake up in the morning and roll out of bed, and I'm over here. And yet you're both really able to talk to whatever I throw in front of you. So I really appreciate that. It's a pleasure. Now we come to the part of the episode where we fact check ourselves. Yes, even in a clip show, we end up having to fact check ourselves. For instance, when Don was trying to recall the term that describes how people act differently when they know they are being watched, it is called the Hawthorne effect named after the industrial work location where the original studies were conducted in the 1930s at the General Motors Hawthorne plant. For instance, when employees knew they were being watched, hand washing after using the bathroom increased by 55%. The same principles of the Hawthorne effect are applied to people who are trying to lose weight when they keep a food diary. Well, that does it for another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. Feel free to join the discussion. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle of suck. You can also find us at our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can let us know which biopic you would like us to research and discuss at our email address, biopicsmostlysuck at gmail.com. And when you do, we will tell the true story about that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.